on this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio. And something I should say that really set spiritualism apart in a lot of ways from what came before it and from a lot of occult movements that existed at the same time was there was a really, a lot of their, you know, vision for the world was that most people or any people had the ability to communicate with spirits, that it was sort of an innate human thing. Some people were better at it, others weren't, but that it was sort of a capacity that almost anyone could improve at kind of like we would think about music or art like you know some people are a bit better but anyone can like sit down and apply themselves so that was very much their attitude which was quite different from kind of having one visionary or one person with second sight who's sort of gifted they see it as something you can work at welcome to rebel spirit radio Exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with the living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this week's episode, author Steele Alexandra Doris joins me to discuss her book, Spirits, Seers, and Seances, Victorian Spiritualism, Magic, and the Supernatural. Steele discusses the history of spiritualism, how it was sometimes a force for social justice, the archetype of the gothic heroine and the final girl, and how Christmas was the time for ghost stories. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Still, Alexandra Doris is an author, artist, and Victorianist, specializing in Victorian spiritualism, crime fiction, and the Gothic novel. She is a PhD candidate in the English department at Stanford University, where she has taught courses on 19th century spiritualism and ghost stories. She holds an MA in English from Stanford University and a BA in Anthropology from the University of Texas at Austin. Still, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining me today. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. And I have a couple of basic questions to start with, but I just wanted to say that one of my interests, one of my personal interests in this is, and maybe it's my age, is how close we are to the Victorian age and how it still seeps into our culture. You know, I was reflecting on this, that as I was a kid growing up, some of the people who would have been in their 80s would have been considered Victorian. My great-grandparents were born in the Victorian era, so it's kind of immediate for me, probably for, you know, Gen Z is even further in the past, but I think it's still part of their lives too. So let's start with very basic kind of definitional questions for anyone who isn't certain about the terms we're using, and that is, what was the Victorian age? And who were the Victorians? So when I'm speaking in the book, I'm talking about, I'm using kind of transatlantic Victorianism. So narrowly defined, the most narrow definition of the Victorians, they would be people who are living under the reign of Queen Victoria from 1837 to 1900. Obviously, Americans were not at that time living under the reign of Queen Victoria. But there is, in a lot of people who work transatlantically, they work on British lit, they work on American lit, they recognize a kind of transatlantic cultural Victorianism, because there was just so much communication, especially in the literary sphere, like back and forth. So when I'm talking about it in the book, I'm really just talking about anyone who was alive from, you know, 1830 to 1901. And in the book, I'm mostly looking at North America and then the UK. Okay. There's definitely a Victorian aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I was trying my best to look Victorian. So this is the closest I could get. And I was wondering, can you say something about that? Uh, because you, you note in the book, you, you write that we are living in an age of aesthetics. So yeah. can you discuss a little bit the Victorian aesthetic? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that made me want to write the book is obviously seeing so much on social media that's very, that's very Victorian inflected, but that's very sort of incorporated into, oh, it's just spooky, it's witchy, it's gothic. Oh, there's a real marriage as well. I think I work a lot on the gothic. The gothic is a huge, you know, research focus for me. And so Obviously, there was a Gothic before the Victorian era. You know, the Gothic existed in the 18th century, and there's a Gothic now. But there's this real marriage a lot of times when people picture the Gothic. 
a lot of times if they describe a house, they're describing like a Victorian house. They're describing someone in dress with like a candelabra. That's it's very Victorian. A lot of times they're really picturing the Victorians. And so that's obviously, you know, just very interesting to me. Like anytime you have something that like it's ongoing now, a literary movement, you know, ongoing now or a genre really that's, you know, 200 years old, you know, and 200 and longer. And but for some reason, when people picture it, they're picturing not it now, not it at its beginning, but really a lot of times this kind of Victorian inflected image. And so that is just really interesting. That was really interesting to me. And in general, right now in particular, I mean, these things change and evolve really rapidly. But even in the time I was writing the book and now the emergence of like dark academia, which is also like a very Victorian inflected. A lot of times people are picturing the 19th century and cottage core, you know, and then there were conversations about cottage core. What is like, what is dark academia idealizing? What is cottage core idealizing? Like, where are these coming from? And I think as a Victorianist, it was also really interesting to me because I feel like the Victorians in many respects were doing kind of the exact same thing with their medievalism in their era where they were really kind of looking, they had like picked an era of special interest to them that they saw as kind of fulfilling in a lot of way a lot of the same desires that make us look back to the Victorian era with like our love of the gothic and dark academia cottage core whatever these kind of like social media aesthetics and and like their medievalism in many respects I think was fulfilling the same kind of need to us and so need for them and so yeah I just found that very fascinating when yeah. I was sort of conceiving of the book. Okay. I have never heard the term cottage core. Can, oh. <laughs> can you explain what that is? Absolutely. I mean, it's essentially, I mean, when I, when I think of it, I think of the hashtag cottage core, but I think it's a much more Gen Z inflected kind mm, of a thing okay. online, but it's a lot of times things that sort of idealize this vision of like sort of vaguely witchy, but like living mm. in the woods and your little like, you know, grow picking mushrooms, you know, like in the light of the full moon, just and, and part of what's driving it is this vision of kind of a, a sort of a peaceful life or, a, you know, very much this kind of kind of detachment from technology, which is another thing that's very interesting to me mm. in the book. Um and in general, because Cottagecore is essentially like it's a hashtag in a lot of ways that's okay. taken off. It exists because of technology in a way, like yeah. it exists because of all these social media platforms. But what it's idealizing is kind of a retreat from technology and a mm. retreat to an earlier era. And so also things like that tend to fascinate me when you have this embrace of an older era that's really only enabled by the technology that we have now. That's very interesting because I was reflecting before we began speaking about how this Victorian aesthetic uh, manifests in our world. And the two that came to mind immediately, one was Harry Potter, the yeah. Harry Potter movies, I think. And even the books are just infused yeah. with Victorian ideas and aesthetic. But the other was steampunk. Yeah. And... I find steampunk and what you just explained as cottage core where one's kind of embracing the technology and imagining different kinds of technologies where what you were just explaining is like no technology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Steampunk is fascinating. I think it's been kind of, I don't know. I don't think it's having as much of a moment as it was, yeah. but in this, in this time of like, you can always find like an area where something is alive, some corner of the internet yeah. where something is alive. And so, yeah, I think, I think a lot of these, because dark academia has a similar thing going on to cottage core where like generally in your conventional vision of dark academia, you're not studying on a laptop. You're like studying in a Hogwarts type library, yeah. you know? And so I think it's probably like we just have different attitudes about technology. And right now people are tending to turn on their technological devices. <laughs> they yeah. are turning away from these, yeah. you know, aesthetics that really embrace technology. Yeah. And and I have to ask, I have a sense of what you mean by dark academia. Sure. Uh, but just to be clear for anyone who's listening, what is that? So this is another like hashtag made real you know mm -hmm. thing that started on you know instagram and pinterest right. essentially but another 
it's another, again, aesthetic, like people will have dark academia outfits or dark academia Instagrams, just dark academia accounts. And it's basically, again, this kind of vision of essentially gothic, the gothic student life or something. So being a student studying, and it's usually studying in the humanities, typically, which I think there's a lot of as we see the academic humanity is kind of in a state of crisis, not to go on a tangent. I think it's really interesting that dark academia is having this moment where it's sort of this vision of just being able to devote your life to studying, you know, the humanities and Mm. art and this sort of like student loan free, you know, Mm. just vision of, of devoting yourself to the humanities. And, and it's very inflected. There have been interesting critiques of it as well, that it tends to be very inflected also with like British boarding school culture in ways that can also be like complicated. And so with both cottage core and dark academia, there are some very interesting critiques about kind of, you know, the racial component and, you know, the, the prominence of a, a lot of times like the UK or Britain in these visions that people have. But yeah, I find both as someone who is on social media, despite my conflicted feelings about it, I found both of those just so, so fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for explaining. It's a little bit of a different idea than what I had in mind for dark academia. But it and often it sounds like the kind of academia that I wish I could have, where I could just (laughs) be in a library and not have any student loans. That would be awesome. (laughs) That would be very, very, very awesome. But you mentioned something that I actually wanted to address. And I, and I want to get into kind of the core of what you're writing in the book, you know? So, you know, we've got a lot to chat about, you know, like with spiritualism and what that was and uh, things that we still have within our culture in, in many ways. But one of the things that you did throughout the book is, and you didn't focus on this, but it's in there, is kind of there's this almost what I would describe as progressiveness often with yeah. a lot of these characters and or figures, personalities that emerge. And I've got a list of yeah. some of them. You know, you're very clear. You begin with a word of caution. Uh, and you're like the Victorian area was very cruel. There's, you know, the ableism, classism, racism, sexism, all of that. But yet there seems to be within the movement that you're looking at counters, pushbacks against that. Yeah. So as we go forward, I want to talk about that a little bit because I think that's really important. Um, yeah. So, but let's first, let's start with spiritualism. No. What is that for anyone who is unfamiliar with it? Absolutely. <laughs> Let me try to be condensed because yeah, it's yeah. like, okay, so spiritualism, uh, the first thing I should say before I say this is that spirit communication and spiritualism are different, right? Spiritualism employs spirit communication, but spirit communication, the idea that you can communicate with some kind of disembodied spirit, whether it's the spirit of a dead person or the spirit of a deity, that's something that's existed in basically all cultures that I'm familiar with in one form or another over time. So the spiritualists did not by any means invent spirit communication. But what happened, and people usually like the very, very widely accepted like first place, first incident of spiritualism happened in the late 1840s in Hydesville, New York. And the thing about New York, upstate New York at that time was that they had been, there had been a lot of religious movements, very alternative, very unusual religious movements that had kind of flared up in the area during the time. And some of those had been interested. A lot of them were very inflected by a character I don't really write about in the book much because he predates the Victorian era, but Swedenborg. And so they had there was already kind of interest in this idea of like hearing from for some of them it was actually hearing from angels or talking to angels or some kind of communication with the dead however it was generally it was a little more on the fringe of a lot of these movements and it was generally something that would be restricted to like one kind of visionary within the group or something and it wasn't necessarily really central What happened in the late 1840s with the Fox sisters in Hydesville, New York, is that they began, should I just do, I guess I'll just do a quick rundown. Basically, this family, (laughs) 
this family, I tell the story a lot, but um, this family, uh, the Fox family had moved into a home in Hydesville, New York, um, a farmhouse and the farmhouse was on the older side and it already kind of had a reputation, a family, maybe more than one family before them had said that they heard weird noises, that they got a very uneasy feeling from it. So it had a bit of a reputation when they moved in. And two of their daughters, Kate and Maggie, two of the younger daughters who were 11 and 14, somewhere around there. I'm forgetting the exact ages now. They in particular, as soon as the family moved in, soon after the family moved in, they reported hearing all kinds of strange things, strange phenomena. They were telling their parents. And there was supposedly a night when they, I think the the parents were in the house and the parents began to hear knocking and rapping as well. And as a side note, the best account, like the the most kind of vivid account of this is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has written a book, The History of Spiritualism. And he has a really vivid account of like the first incident of spiritualism, which is kind of fun to read if you want to read a Victorian account of this. But anyway, they basically, the children would call out to the spirit. And then according to people who were in the room at the time, they would hear knocking, cracking, rapping, all of these sounds. And so they sort of devised a system for communicating back and forth where someone would call out the letters of the alphabet. And then when like they reached a certain letter, they would hear a sound. And so they would spell out words. So there was this kind of new, you know, there was this very different component. A lot of what you see before with like spirit communication, it's more visions a lot of times, like someone's receiving visions. But with this, there's not just the sense that like, oh, there are spirits out there we can get visions of them, you know, they can speak to us in our dreams. There's this sense that like, no, no, they're in the room, they're producing phenomena, we can go back and forth. So that was like, it it just, it was one of those things that like, hits at the perfect time, Mm. in a lot of ways in the mid 19th century, and just really took off. And you know, word spread of what was going on at the Fox farmhouse. Then all of a sudden, everyone, basically, all of these people are starting to try to see if they can communicate um, with the spirits. And something I should say that really set spiritualism apart in a lot of ways from what came before it and from a lot of occult movements that existed at the same time was there was a really, a lot of their, you know, vision for the world was that most people or any people had the ability to communicate with spirits, that it was sort of an innate human thing. Some people were better at it, others weren't, but that it was sort of a capacity that almost anyone could improve at. Kind of like we would think about music or art, like, you know, some people are a bit better, but anyone can like sit down and apply themselves. So that was very much their attitude, which was quite different from kind of having one visionary or one person with second sight who's sort of gifted. They see it as something you can work at. Then they also importantly, are really like a lot of the important figures in the spiritualist movement are really interested in this idea of investigation. So they want to investigate it. They want to record what's going on. So it's again, not just like one kind of wise woman in the village who sometimes get visions and tells you like, you know, don't, you know, don't marry that man. Don't do this. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's like a, an understanding of it as an ability that all people have. And that some, it's something that can be scientifically studied and, observed basically and recorded and so that was a little disorganized but that's basically spiritualism and it had a huge heyday 1850s through the end of the 19th century by the end of the 19th century things were a bit complicated there were a lot of challenges to spiritualist movement a lot of people were very invested in debunking it there were some major scandals by by the end of the 19th century but then World War One happened, and a generation. World War One, and also the pandemic. Their pandemic, the Spanish flu. So, uh, you know, a generation really was taken out, and so there was a real resurgence of interest in spirit communication. But then you really see it dying out around World War Two. You know, it's and it still exists in some forms to this day, but it's not what it was in the 19th century. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that you noted that it was. You know, I think you wrote that it was a hybrid child of religious fervor, scientific curiosity, 19th century mysticism, but it was also born of grief, especially like, you know, in the United States after the Civil War. Yeah. And yeah. like you said, you know, there was this resurgence of it with after the Spanish flu and World War One. That makes total mm-hmm. sense. So there are a couple of things I want to address within this. 
One is that the spiritualist movement spawned a lot of other movements. We have the yeah. scientific. So let's start there because it seems like this is the birth of what we might refer to as uh, paranormal research. Sir Arthur uh, Conan Doyle was part of that, as were other prominent figures. So can you speak to that a little bit about how our modern exploration of paranormal has its kind of origins in uh, spiritualism? Absolutely. So, I mean, the thing that, the thing that's really interesting, so spiritualism and investigation, which is what I've been yeah. talking about since the book, I'm now writing about it yeah. academically as well. Spiritualism and this idea of investigation, as I was saying, they are really important. They can't be separated in a lot of ways. And the idea of investigation and spiritualism, they really intersect in at least three different ways. One is that the spiritualists saw themselves as investigators. A lot of them identified themselves as investigators. They were investigating the other realm. They used that mm -hmm. language a lot. They would ha say, like, here's advice for those who wish to investigate. So they very much claimed that label, in part because you know, the mid 19th century was obviously a really, you know, critical time in terms of like science, in, in terms of science, especially one of the things that's frequently cited is Darwin's On the Origin of Species or was published right around the same time that the spiritualist movement was really getting going. And that text, Darwin's text was a really, it was a really destabilizing kind of text at the time, you know, people who had had very strong opinions about how humanity came to be suddenly had this like alternative explanation. And so it was a very like complicated, there were a lot of complicated conversations happening. A lot of people were as a result of the kind of scientific environment at the time, really just in a position to be open-minded because they were already having to be open-minded about so many other things. And so things were really in transition. They were really in flux. So the spiritualists really saw themselves as like part of that, like all of these new avenues of scientific investigation are opening up, you know, sciences in general are, you know, undergoing massive evolution. And so they saw themselves as part of that. Uh, pretty much as soon as the spiritualists, well, really, I mean, from the beginning with the Fox family, the spiritualists were also being investigated. Houdini was a, he's, he's a popular example, but Houdini made like a career out of, he left nothing better than a debunking. So that was like, that was like one of his great passions in yeah. life. So, so there were people and, and the debunkers became like increasingly, I think, kind of committed to debunking as the spiritualist movement kind of matured as well. So as the spiritualist movement was kind of becoming more complicated, more entrenched, there were more texts. There were more people involved. There were also more and more people kind of, obviously it's gaining more attention. And so there's more people kind of invested in investigating it in some way. And then at some point, I forget the exact date, it's in the book, but the society in the late 19th century, the Society for Paranormal Research was founded in London. And the idea behind that was sort of that people who were very skeptical, that skeptics and believers would be able to work together to investigate. There were a lot of like, scandals and disagreements. It was not necessarily, I think, what they had pictured when they originally founded it, but the Society for Paranormal Research does still exist to this day. So that was like, that's a, you know, long, long-lived organization that was founded then. And then also with the, as you can see again, right from the Fox sisters, this idea, well, I should say actually something I didn't mention about the Fox sisters is that really, really soon after this entire incident, was unfolding as the incident was unfolding at their house where they were communicating with this you know spirit that they that they claimed to be able to communicate with people began like when the spirit was you know when they were hearing these knocks and they were spelling out words one of the things that that was argued was basically that this was the spirit of a murdered peddler who had been buried on the property and so this launched like an actual investigation like an actual criminal investigation yeah. essentially i don't think i don't know that the actual like authorities were involved but the neighborhood was extremely invested in finding out did anyone see a peddler when was it, when would this peddler have been here they excavated part of the cellar the cellar was actually excavated several times, you know, decades in the future, even after the Fox sisters had grown up and, and died. 
So there was also this question from the beginning, which I think is one of the most fascinating connections, because if we look at paranormal investigation shows now, a lot of times there is an interest in crimes that have been committed, people that have been killed. I think there's a really strong sense from the beginning that one of the strengths of the spirit communication is also that it can, I think I say in the book, but it like gives voice to the voiceless, right? So it's this it's a way to communicate with people who suffered great injustice in life. And that's something spiritualists who were also involved in activism for things like abolition. A lot of times they were tapping into that idea as well, that like, you know, even the spirits know that like, you know, slavery is wrong. See, you know, so there, I think one of the things that's there from the beginning is that, you know, spiritualism can be a force for justice and it can be a force for justice through consulting the spirits about like injustice, in our community and it can also be a force for justice in that you might be able to communicate with someone who was murdered and they might be able to help you solve the case and we still see people who you know offer to consult with you know the families of people who are missing or something like that yeah. with that same kind of idea yeah and thank you for taking us back to that because i had a list of some of the people that were involved in all of this and trying to, I have uh, several pages of notes here. So sometimes it's hard for me to find them, but like you said, so there just a couple of them. There was just to give the names, Harriet Martineau, uh, you wrote that she's a passionate atheist, social critic and advocate for the rights of women in the working class. Uh, Harriet Wilson was a black American spiritualist and she gave lectures in favor of labor reform Cora Scott used her platform to relay messages from the spirits regarding the immorality of slavery, the rights of women, and the plights of the Native Americans. And so that was that sort of progressiveness that I had mentioned at the beginning as well. And if I also understand this, and maybe you can speak to this, it also gave women a voice in many ways and legitimacy in spiritual circles. Is that fair to say? Yes, I would definitely say. I mean, I always try to I try to be very nuanced when I talk about the spiritualist, like the political aspect of the spiritualist right. movement, because it's one of those moments where it's really important to hold two truths kind of at the yeah. same time. And one right. of them is that there's still a Victorian movement. There's still absolutely racism and misogyny right. and all of these things within the movement. Absolutely. You know, no aspect of their society then would have been free from that at all. The other truth, though, which I think is important, is that spiritualism wasn't in many cases. I mean, there were there were obviously plenty of people who, you know, weren't necessarily deeply activist in their nature who were involved in the spiritualist movement. But a lot of the big figures in the spiritualist movement were very political, um, which is something else that you just don't see a lot of times in like modern media. You see the seance. It's like a scary experience or it's like but this entire political framework that had built up behind it and how politically involved a lot of the women were who were involved and men. But I think it was a very important platform for women. The thing about at that time, first of all, women were not completely, but overwhelmingly, you know, locked out of, you know, traditional scientific fields. So if they wanted to engage in the kind of experimentation and investigation that we were talking about earlier going into chemistry or something like that overwhelmingly for most of them would not have been an option in the way that it would have been for men same thing with going into medicine which i think is a very important part of why like psychic healing and spiritual healing was also really important you know women were really you know it was a difficult time in a lot of ways because women we were sort of past the like village wise woman or midwife era there was a lot of pushback in the 19th century against like you don't want a midwife in the village you want like a doctor right so there's this real masculinization of a lot of things that maybe 100 200 years earlier would have actually been like no she doesn't have a medical degree but she is competent to do this she can treat this she treats children in the village so in the 19th century there's a lot of you want a medical man you want someone with training um and and women can't get that training, right? So it's like, you don't want a midwife and the midwife can't go get a medical degree. So it's not a great, you know, it's not a great time for women who are interested in medicine. And so spiritualism though, because with spiritual healing and psychic healing, the idea is that it's coming from kind of this innate, you know, you know, something I might've mentioned earlier is that uh, the spiritualist movement 
most of the people in the spiritualist movement believed that women were a little more inherently mediumistic, right? So if anything, they were thought to have an edge. And so if you were using like psychic abilities or spiritual abilities to heal someone, then actually being a woman would give you an edge in a way that they saw like being a woman in the medical field a lot of times was like not, it was seen as, you know, not a good thing um, rather than an edge. So it gave them an opportunity to participate in like, you know, fields in a, in a, in an unusual way, in an unconventional way, but to participate in fields that they had really just been um, really locked out of. Let's see, what else was I going to say? I think that was, yeah. And then spiritualism and the uh, abolition of slavery in the United States, the spiritualists, again, I'm sure there, you know, there were definitely some who were not pro-abolition, but largely when you look at a lot of the big figures, they were very interested um, in abolition. Um, and, and then there were also just, it was interesting doing this research because I, at the time that I was reading, more about the political aspects of spiritualism there were really like I didn't really know that there was a free love movement at all in the 19th century you know like that wasn't (laughs) something that was on my radar as a Victorianist because you know because it certainly wasn't mainstream it's not what it was in the 1960s but I think part of me when I first was studying like spiritualism politics in the Victorian era some of these like vegetarianism, pacifism, free love, which again, very fringe, really fringe. Yeah, <laughs> Most yeah. of what you heard about the Victorians is true. But but the idea that these were still in conversation and in circulation in some small fringe way in these in this movement, you know, was really fascinating to me. And I think it also, it's just interesting to think about, even if overwhelmingly, like the spiritualists were embracing like monogamy and they were eating meat and they were not pacifists, you know, the fact that for a woman who got involved in spiritualism or a man, but especially, you know, thinking about women who got involved in spiritualism, if they went to these spiritualist events or spiritualist circles, or they were moving in these circles, they would have been exposed to all of these ideas, even if they didn't adhere to them themselves. They would have heard about all of these ideas that maybe they would not have come into contact with any other way. And so it enabled them to sort of be in circulation with all these things that, you know, must have been really exciting and different and really freeing to just, you know, be be in a space where people were having those kinds of conversations at least. Yeah. Yeah. The Victorian era seems to me to be almost kind of liminal because it's the, this transition, you know, we had the birth of the industrial revolution and, you know, you write a little bit about urbanization as people are leaving the land and going into the cities. And when I think of the Victorian era, I always think of London and how horribly polluted it was. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's like this liminal stage where interesting things can happen and movements can happen that kind of lead us to the next. Right. So there's a lot I want to talk to you about, but I know our time is limited. But let me ask you about, because we were talking about women and their role in spiritualism. And it seems to me that sort of the emblematic figure of all of this is what you refer to as the Gothic heroine. Uh, It's kind of shift gears a little bit to that. And I was wondering if you could maybe say something about the Gothic heroine and how she represents the the female in the Victorian era. Absolutely. Yes. The Gothic. Always happy to talk about the Gothic. So let's see, where do I start though? So what I'll say about the Gothic in general, that is really foundational when we think about the Gothic heroine is that the Gothic is a genre that is really invested from its origins in kind of the horror of domesticity in a way, or the horrors that can lurk in the home. Especially if we go back to the 18th century, there's the, I talk about this in the book, but the explained and the unexplained Gothic. And in the explained, which was largely written by women, which is one of, they used to call it the feminine and the masculine Gothic, but we don't do that anymore. But the explained and unexplained. In the explained Gothic, a lot of times, this is in the 18th century, not the 19th century, but in the 18th century, in the roots of the Gothic, in the explained Gothic, it's a little bit like, 
Scooby-Doo, the example I use in the (laughs) book, but it's so accurate. There's things that seem to be supernatural. And then it turns out that it's like your scheming uncle trying to steal your inheritance, which for women in the 18th and 19th century, you know, to have an inheritance at all, you know, so that kind of risk is, so a lot of times the villain turns out to be, it's a human villain. It's not a supernatural villain. Um, so, and then that that distinction really only existed for like a generation or so. And then it really kind of broke down in the Victorian era. A lot of what we see, like a lot of the Gothic is the ghost story. We see so much of the ghost story. Um, so, but from the beginning, you know, the reason when we think of the Gothic, a lot of times the first thing people will say is like a haunted house or a scary house or a Gothic house. It's because the Gothic is so invested in this idea of like what horrors lurk at home. And that made it a really perfect genre to sort of explore the lives of women. Because if you were a middle-class woman in the woman in the 19th century, you know, it's less true for working class women, but especially for middle class women and middle class women in the Victorian era, they were under an enormous amount of kind of social pressure to be essentially the moral compass of society. It wasn't so much the wealthy women, not so much the working class women, because Victorians were like extremely classist. So but it was really like the middle class mother who was supposed to be this kind of like, you know, conscience of society and very pure, this angel in the home, as they call it. And so, and her, like the, the classic, you know, Victorian middle-class mother, you know, her, her domain was the home. She was supposed to be home doing things in the home. And so, and, and the Victorian era, they also, in the Victorian era, they were also really in part due to this urbanization, increased urbanization, they became very romantic about the home. So it's like, you know, the home is a cozy space. It's a welcoming space. Your mother's there. She makes you food. And so in the Gothic, we see this kind of reaction to that evolving from the 18th century, but really strengthening in the 19th century. That's kind of like, but what if things aren't going well at home? You know, what if things, what if something's terribly wrong in the home? So you have possession, you have ghosts, you have like murderers lurking in the family tree, that kind of thing and the gothic heroine is really you know some of the characteristics that I talk about in the book that define her that also really interestingly apply to a lot of the women who kind of um, became involved in the spiritualist movement the gothic heroine is usually she's still usually kind of a moral compass in the same way that like the traditional Victorian mother is kind of a moral compass so she's not usually you know evil bad anything like that she's the heroine but she is extremely smart, extremely perceptive. And an example I use a lot of times is if we think about in modern horror, the idea of the final girl. So a lot of those classic horror films, there's like the 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 one girl, the one woman that survives until the end. Frequently, unfortunately, if you look at it, she's like the smart one who's not necessarily fooling around with the boys. She's watching and she kind of knows what's going on much earlier than the other characters do. And she sort of uses her wit to save herself and that's old that's very old that goes back definitely to the gothic heroines 18th and 19th century where they're sort of often very you know pure would be but they're also smart and perceptive and they get themselves out of bad situations usually using their wits and the idea of perception is also really important in the gothic because a lot of the gothic you know, you you can't trust what you see, you can't trust what you hear, you know, they never really know, like, if they see a light at night, is it a ghost? Are they hallucinating? Is it their creepy uncle? Like, they never kind of know, like, (laughs) what they're seeing. And so I found it interesting when I was researching the spiritualists, also thinking about this kind of like, like, especially the idea of phenomenon, because like, phenomena in the Gothic, things you hear, things you see, you know, and you don't really know where they're coming from, could be someone playing a trick, could be that there's a ghost, could be that you're unwell, that you're an unreliable narrator and you're sort of breaking down. Um, it's very similar to, you know, phenomena is so important in the spiritualist movement where they're trying to record, like, what did we hear during the seance? What did we see during the seance? And so in a lot of respects, some of these seances, it's like certain aspects of the Gothic just kind of popped off of the page <laughs> in a way. Um, so, so yeah, but I think, I think the, the gothic heroine in a lot of ways and like the spiritualist medium they're just you know they they share an enormous amount in the 19th century yeah and 
it's interesting because you know i know coming from a very different uh point of view or background in philosophy for example moral yeah. philosophy is that it's during this period that virtue gets associated with the female and the female purity. And as you were talking about modern horror and the final girl, you know, that's something that we still saw a lot, especially in the eighties with the, like the slashers, you know, it was those who engage in sex. They're always the first to go. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Without fail. Yeah. And so there's still that sort of Victorian idea of purity involved, but there seems to be a lot of power with the Victorian Gothic heroine. However, there's also another aspect to this that you write about with figures like Ophelia. And I was, I was not familiar with this one, Lady Shalott. Yeah. And you noted that what they kind of represent is that the price of rebellion is death. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So in that chapter, it's the, yes, the Pre-Raphaelite chapter. So I'm writing about the Pre-Raphaelite painters and they've been close to my heart since I was like 14. I went through my first Pre-Raphaelite phase, but the Pre-Raphaelite painters, they love to paint, you know, these mythical women, especially. So they were very involved in this like Victorian medievalism. They were really, they were really looking back. A lot of times they were painting like classical heroines, you know, they paint Cassandra or Helen of Troy and they painted a lot of medieval figures. You know, they painted, you know, like Guinevere. Actually, I can't think of a Guinevere off the top of my head, but a lot of medieval characters. And it's interesting because at the same time that we have this, uh, you know, we have women sort of becoming empowered with the spiritualist movement in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of the classical heroines that they're painting are like witches, or they're very powerful. Some of what we see with this interest in medievalism and, you know, Arthurian legend, especially like tragic women in Arthurian legend and in Shakespeare, they're also very interested in Shakespeare, you know, tragic women, certainly in Shakespeare's tragedies, and in a lot of Arthurian legends, they're, they're really prominent kind of the beautiful young dying or dead woman (laughs) essentially is like a really uh powerful motif and it's something that at the same time they're kind of painting these characters like Circe or Cassandra who are well Cassandra is a tragic woman at the end but you know kind of much more outspoken characters Medea would be another one they're also really fixated on these kinds of just these tragic women and these women who you know transgress even these really minor uh conventions you know with with the lady of shallot who i wrote about i wrote specifically about there are a couple of big pre-raphaelite paintings of her but especially john william waterhouse did a you know pretty it's one of the bigger paintings i think to come out of the pre-raphaelite movement can can you say who she was i wasn't familiar with her before i read your book Um, absolutely so Uh, There's been, she, her origins definitely go back to, what did I say, the 13th century, something like that. So, but Tennyson, you know, Alfred Tennyson, he, and he was, you know, the most popular poet in Victorian England. He was poet laureate forever. And he was very interested also in writing poetry about these medieval figures. And he wrote the poem, The Lady of Shalott, which is probably now, if, if for people who do, you know, are interested in the Lady of Shalott, the poem is almost certainly what they're going to think of first. And in this poem, essentially, the Lady of Shalott has been, she lives in this tower not far from Camelot, and she's been cursed. We're not told why in the poem, but she's been cursed that she cannot leave the tower and she can't even look out the window of the tower. So she has to stay in the tower And she spends all of her time weaving tapestries. And the only way she can see the outside world is she can look into a mirror that's positioned so that she can actually see the reflection of what's happening outside the window. So she can't even look out the window. She has to look into the mirror and then she can see what's happening. And so in Tennyson's poem, which differs a little bit in certain ways from you know, some of the earliest mythology around her, but he really is kind of the definitive version. She sees Lancelot, a reflection of Lancelot riding by in her mirror. And she's so kind of like overcome that she actually gets up and looks out the window. She wants to actually see him. And as soon as she does this, the mirror cracks 
you know, it's like, and she knows that like she's triggered the curse essentially. And she knows that she's going to die. So she goes down to the water. She lives by the water and she puts herself into a, into a boat and she like looses the chain on the boat and she floats down the river to Camelot. And by the time she gets there, she's died. And it's a very, if you think about like, again, this kind of romanticization of, I don't know, beautiful dead women, essentially, which unfortunately, again, does recur. It's like an absolutely classic example. You know, Tennyson's writing, it's really, I, I love Tennyson. So it's, you know, really beautiful writing, really visual, really stunning, but just sort of classic. Like, she's so beautiful. She's singing. She's sighing. She's in the boat. Look how beautiful she is. And I think also, and obviously, it was a very popular poem. People who are into Victorian poetry now, it's one of the big ones. But it's also just really, it's it's really interesting because like she can't leave her home. I mean, it's such a, it's like he's he's very focused a lot of times in the poem on kind of the beauty of the whole thing. And it's also visual, but it's also from like a Victorian woman's perspective. It's like this poor woman can't even look out her window or leave or she's going to die. But obviously she chooses to do it anyway. And then she dies. And so I think, again, when these, you know, spiritualist women and women in general were sort of any any woman who wanted to pursue anything outside of the home which was so much harder than and honestly just off limits to you know a lot of women um you know the, the kind of calculation almost of like what are you willing to risk to go outside your house anyway I think is really it's, it's just really poignant when you're reading the poem and I think it's part of what the pre-Raphaelite painters were really picking up on when they were like putting that character on the canvas. Yeah. And I, I have to ask you this question. I should have asked you before beginning recording this. Have you been to England? I have. Yes. Okay. The reason I ask is because as you were writing in the book on the pre-Raphaelites, you mentioned Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Yes. And I was thinking about the, you know, Victorianism and whatnot. And my experience, I think the most Victorian thing I have ever experienced was going to Highgate Cemetery in London. Oh God, I've been there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, so I've been there. <laughs> did you do the tour where they tell you the stories? Um uh, because I there's did a, not. Oh, because there's a very specific story with Dante Gabriel Rossetti, which is like the most gothic Victorian thing that I can imagine. I have a book on Highgate Cemetery and I was trying to find it. I think it may still be in a box. I moved over the summer, but my understand, and I don't know if it's the same person. There was also Christina Rossetti. I don't know if that was his, his wife. Oh, it was his sister. sister. Okay. Well, this wasn't his sister, but it was his wife or lover or something. Oh, yeah. And the story is that she had died and he had this book of poetry that he had buried with her. Yeah. And then years later, he really regretted that. Oh, and God. so, so, so he dug up the grave <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> and apparently her hair had continued to grow and the oh, book of poetry God. was all enmeshed in this growing hair. And I'm like, if there's anything that's Victorian, it's that. <laughs> that is. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So if you go, if you go back to London and Highgate, I highly recommend taking the tour because they will tell you all of these sorts of stories. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I just wandered around, but I definitely want to go back. And uh, yeah. I had no idea. I don't think I even knew. I don't think I knew Rossetti was buried there, but that's yeah. Yeah. Well, there's two, there's two sides. So there's one side where you're not allowed to take pictures. And then there's another side where you are, at least the last, when I was there, that's yeah. the way it was. Uh, but on the one side, they will take you through a tour. Um, and you see Dickens, I think is there and some of his children and whatnot. So speaking of Dickens, <laughs> <laughs> this was something that was really interesting to me. And it'd be part of me. I'm like, Oh, I want to do a whole episode on this for Christmas. But the the his Christmas story that I never knew that this was an entire genre. Of, oh yeah, <laughs> of, uh, you wrote Christmas was the season for ghost stories. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I found yeah. that fascinating. <laughs> 
Yeah. So this was something that was especially true in the UK. It was less true in the United States at the time, but there was a loose kind of Dickens had played a huge role in this. Dickens was like, you know, but there was a general kind of loose association between like Christmas and ghosts before Dickens wrote, let's see, Christmas Carol would have been late 1830s. So before then, there was a looser, no, 1840s. Anyway, there was a loose association between the Christmas season and ghosts. There are a few reasons for why it may just be, I mean, partly, obviously, there's like the climatological, it's it's cold, it, you know, everything's dead. Something that I found really interesting that a Victorian writer had actually proposed when they were kind of musing about it at the same time was sort of the tradition of for the people who had money in London, they would often like go back to their ancestral home and they would be there over the season. And so, you know, this idea, and obviously their servants would also be moving with them. So it would be a household. And so the idea that you're maybe going back to your family's ancestral, like ancestral drafty home where your ancestors are buried, maybe, or, you know, maybe that sort of strengthened that connection. But there was a loose connection around the time that with, with Dickens, A Christmas Carol, he wrote a lot of like ghost stories after that. But A Christmas Carol really sort of launched this, this fascination with Christmas, Christmas ghost stories. And especially around the same time, people were starting to, as a result of the industrialization, and there was a booming middle class in the UK, basically, people were getting more into Christmas gifts in general. Like there was a general kind of rise of consumerism mm -hmm. happening in the 19th century, which also sort of boosted Christmas because Christmas in the UK was not anywhere near the huge holiday in 1830 that it was by like 1930. You know, it underwent huge transformation from like one of the holidays during the year to like, you know, a big holiday. And so part of that was the culture around gift giving, the culture around, you know, again, this Victorian obsession with kind of the domestic and bringing things home and your little home, your cozy home. And so part of what happened was it became like one of the really popular Christmas gifts at the time was to give people like a book of ghost stories or a scary book. Like books were very popular Christmas gifts as they are now. And, you know, Dickens, in addition to writing novels, he ran newspapers, you know, and he would each each year basically there would be like a release of christmas ghost stories so he would kind of you know grab together a bunch of his friends and other you know prominent victorian writers and they would like each contribute a ghost story to the paper for 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 christmas so i don't know when exactly this died down to be honest i think it was really at its height in the 19th century and then sort of gradually died off after that but a really popular christmas tradition was telling ghost stories and a really popular Christmas gift was a book of ghost stories. Um, and Dickens absolutely played a huge role in that with the success of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, wasn't it? I think you noted in the book that a possible explanation was just kind of remembering those who were no longer with us. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. I think yeah, I think something that actually some of the, you know, people now are very interested in kind of Victorian, the Victorian macabre in a way, Victorian yeah. mourning, Victorian attitudes towards death. There's been a lot of interesting books published that touch on that in some way. But I think something the Victorians did definitely do better than us in a lot of ways was just sort of create space for grief mm. in people's life. And it was probably because, you know, people lost people more frequently and at younger ages than we do now um but they did create a lot of a lot more space and a lot more of a culture around mourning and grief ritual around mourning and grief um and so and obviously you know one of the times when people often struggle if they've lost someone is like major events after they've lost someone among them like major holidays and so i do think also that that's may have contributed a role as well it may have played a role as well because it you know it allows for a kind of something an emotion that's not just like happy 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 which yeah. sometimes is what we do you know around our holidays now it's like it's the happiest time of the year and it's like so many people are stressed out <laughs> are not having an amazing and time. depressed yeah deeply and depressed de yeah. yeah or yeah. mourning or and right. so I think also there's possibly something 
you know, even if it's like a ghost story, not necessarily a sad story or an essay about grief, it allows for a kind of an emotion that's not mm. just like, aren't we happy? And mm. isn't everything wonderful? Life, life, life. You know, it allows for this kind of intrusion of like death or like the shadowy side of life or right. something again, that's not just cheer. <laughs> right, right, right. So, but, so that's around Christmas. Do yeah. you think because I know that we're almost out of time here. So this will be my next to the last question is I was curious what you thought the, the source of the interest or the allure of the Victorian for us living in the 21st century. Interesting. What is the source? Well, there's a few things. One that I think is really important about the Victorian era is that it's sort of the farthest we can go back and have photos, which is something that I think about a lot because I'm very interested in photography. We didn't talk about photography much, but right. photography and the spiritualist movement. It's the farthest back that we can go and still have photos of people's life. But And I think that's huge. I think it's huge for us living in an era where we have so many photos. It's I often think of it as like it's kind of the farthest back you can go and it still feels so contemporary in a lot of ways. And I think the technology that they had at the time, especially photos, contributes to that a lot because the, the gap is amazing between the 18th century and the 19th century in terms of people have such a clear picture a lot of times of the 19th century. If you say like Victorian 19th century Dickens, they, they can picture it in a way that a lot of times you talk about the 18th century and people are kind of like, I don't really, you know, like okay. they might know like the Revolutionary War or the French Revolution or something. But if you sort of ask them more, some of the fashion maybe, but there, there's a big gap in terms mm. of like people seem to connect much more with the 19th century than they do with the 18th century. And I do think photography plays a big role in that. I also think, and, I, you know, I sort of talked about this before, but the Victorians were like, I think what we're connecting to in a weird way is not that they were, you know, living in a simpler time, you know, and that like, you know, they were living this technology free life and everything was slow paced or what they were actually reaching, as I said, kind of reaching back to an earlier era for those things. And that's what we're connecting with them. Yeah. We're like, they have the same impulse that we mm. do. And we're connecting to that. We're not connecting to the fact that actually their life was so much simpler and so much easier. And it was also, they had the same anxieties mm. <laughs> that we do. And the same kind of like, you know, trains were amazing. Telegrams were amazing. Photography was amazing, but it's also frightening when things like that happen and they disrupt life. And when you have massive urbanization, you get disconnected from the village where your family lived forever. And that's frightening, you know? And so I think what we're connecting to isn't at all like, oh, we want to live their lives or, oh, there's something so great about their life. It's like, they were scared of a lot of the same stuff <laughs> that we're afraid of. Yeah. And they had this same, like, you know, this, this same turn towards, you know, and for them, a lot of times it was Arthurian legends or it was, you know, but so I think we really connect. I mean, maybe it's a weird way to put it, but our anxieties in some yeah. respects. <laughs> no, that makes total sense. I, I totally get that because we're, yeah, that's what we're doing. You know, we're facing new technologies and, <laughs> you know, the effects of urbanization and industrialization just, you know, on a different scale than what they did. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And there's a lot more I wish we had the time to discuss, but what I'll do is tell people to get a copy of your book, Spirit Seers and Seances. Is it out now? Is it? It is out now. It's um, actually yeah, have a well, it's mirrored. Yeah, yeah, it's out now. It's available ebook, audiobook, paperback. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Well, let me ask you the final questions, and that is, what do you have coming up next? I know part of that answer. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, as we were chatting about before, finishing a dissertation, which yeah. is just taking over my life. Other than that, possibly, I mean, nothing really concrete at this point. Okay. Possibly another nonfiction book, still kind of deciding what that would look like. Possibly also historical fiction about Victorian spiritualists. I would really like to write. I've, I've got all the research at this mm -hmm. point. And before I lose it, because I know it's going to mm -hmm. start slipping away, I would like to write some fiction set in the era. So maybe something like that. But otherwise, I'm just online, more quiet online than I'd like to be because of the dissertation, but I may be more active online soon. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of online, do you have like a webpage or uh, is there a place on social media where people can uh, connect? 
So my handle on social media is at Steel Arcana, A-R-C-A-N-A, rather than using my whole name. So Steel, S-T-E-E-L-E-A-R-C-A-N-A. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm most active on Instagram right now, but I'm not that active on Instagram. I plan to start doing more like informational videos and things like that once the dissertation is over, but that's where I I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I am too. I am definitely (laughs) having to up my my social media game. I had someone get after me about that. They're like, look, if you want to do this, you have to do that. Okay. So, well, Steele, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And like I said, I feel like there's a lot of other areas we could have gone, but I really encourage people to get the book. It was a fun read. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap on episode 113 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience. Now, you know what's coming up next, all the usual. Sign up for my Patreon, share this with friends and family and on social media. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. You know the grind. But here's the thing. All of that is really important. Putting this podcast together takes quite a lot of time and effort on my part. Right now, it's just a labor of love. I'm in the process of making changes to improve the podcast and the YouTube channel. It's slow going, like my dad used to say, slower than molasses in January. But your support will help me speed up the process and ensure that I can continue with the podcast and offer much more content than what I provide now. As I always like to say, I'm here on the front range now doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology psychedelics and consciousness and how all of this can help us heal humanity's uh, relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know, I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me in my efforts to share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to, or watching, Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, And may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.